One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. Hello, and welcome back to 1 minute remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. As you're probably already aware, as part of this show, we have bonus subscriber content. When I first started the show many months ago, people asked me how they could help support us. So we started our subscriber service, which you can join either through Apple Plus subscription or on Patreon, the links of which are in the show notes of this episode. Part of that subscription service is a monthly bonus episode, where I speak with other men and women from the world in which we explore crime and punishment. And as a very special treat for you today, I'm releasing one of these episodes in its entirety for you to listen to, because I'm just a nice guy. So I really hope you enjoy today's episode, which is truly mind-blowing. Hello? (laughs) Here he is. Can you see me? I can't see you, no. Let's see. There he is. (laughs) I, I feel like I should have the North Korean national anthem ready just to play on your arrival, <laughs> sir. <laughs> North Korea. You only have to say the name and it evidently invokes images of a brutal regime a country controlled by a dictatorship that stretches back to 1948, when the founder and first supreme leader, Kim Il-sung, took power. It's a country that is shrouded in secrecy. And while some mock the regime and its leaders, of course, the now Kim Jong-un, there are plenty of people, including the country's own, that suffer at the brutality of those in power. North Korea is a country that you can travel to, However, it is strongly advised against by practically all Western governments to do so. Should you decide to go against this advice and indeed make the trip to the DPRK, then be warned. You better be an obedient tourist, because if not, well, not even the great leader's own brother is safe from retribution. Entering Kuala Lumpur Airport in the grey suit, this CCTV appears to show Kim Jong-nam. He continues into the busy departures hall, where an audacious assassination is apparently about to take place. So what on earth possessed a man from Denmark by the name of Jim Latrache to not only go to North Korea, but to do so undercover as a billionaire arms dealer looking to expose this regime? Well, before we even get there, we still have to talk about his time in the French Foreign Legion, cocaine trafficking, and two stints in prison. Yes, if this was a script for a Hollywood movie, you'd be laughed right out of the boardroom. However, this is not fiction. This is the life of the man that the North Koreans would come to know as Mr. James. From reading your book, which again is is amazing, would it be fair to say that you had a quite a um, tumultuous upbringing, <laughs> to say the least? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can say that. Um, I, I, th- I think it's, it took a crazy turn also during to the time because in the early eighties you were rather like everybody else, or you were a troubled kid. So uh, I have ADHD and I'm dyslexic. I think my only crime at that time was that um, I couldn't show up in class. It's it's not like I come from a broken home. Uh, I always had food on the tables and stuff like that. 
I think the big game changer was when I was 12. My teacher convinced my mom it would be in everybody's best interest if I came to a boarding school for trouble kids. It was my, how can you say it, the start for a crazy life in the wrong direction, if you could say. Yeah. I mean, you actually say in the book, from the age of 12 onward, you hated every single day of your life. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I don't think it's healthy for a kid in such an early age to be told that you're not like everybody else. And if you take a guy who has ADHD and put them in a regular classroom, they will fail because that's not the way they learn. And if you are exposed to things that you're not good at continually, your self-esteem becomes lower and lower, and then you start to have low thoughts about yourself. You know, you also talk about um, at one point, did you get taken in by a family who were adopting sort of kids from all sorts of backgrounds? Yeah, I mean, after the uh, boarding school, uh, I, I went to a school home for boys. And after that, uh, I had some foster parents, yes. So can you explain that whole foster parent situation for us? I mean, because, you know, obviously most people who, who get fostered by other parents means that they don't have parents, but you did still have uh, your mother. and Yeah, no. So th- the thing was and that this was not like they adopt you. It's just like you live with some new parents. And uh, this guy, he was actually the first person in my life I actually respected because my entire life people have been yelling at me being quite rough at me and here was a guy who who actually saw everything in another perspective because uh, you have to understand like I think in Denmark around the 70s it was illegal to hit kids in schools and in any kind of institutions but in those homes that rule was a little blurry. That guy I lived with, he used to be the headmasters of um, some really rough homes. And he was quite pissed about that a lot of the staff didn't honor the new law. And he was fed up about the bureaucracy because he actually wanted to do it different. So on his older years, he decided, fuck that. He bought a farm and he changed it into a place where he could have kids and try to do something good. I mean, you say in your book so, it was the first time in a while that you actually felt normal. No, it was because he never yelled at me. He actually showed me another way. I mean, he actually be- treated me like a human being. Is that because my ADHD stopped? Because he made sure I went back into a normal classroom. I kind of thought because he was actually always nice to me, never yelled at me or anything, that I kind of owned him. So like before I wanted to say something, because when you have ADHD, you're very spontaneous you just come up with shit and stuff like that so it actually made me think a little bit before it's not because i didn't do fuck up but i would say i did less <laughs> you're a bit more controlled than normal yeah as jim grew up he says that he was afraid of everything and he wanted to not only confront his fears but overcome them and how do you do that well by joining the French Foreign Legion, of course. Today you would say I have I had anxiety. At that time I was just a pussy. But <laughs> but I mean if you're overprotected, I'm not saying that you should be fearless. But I think I think if you're controlled by your fear. It limited everything you do in life. It, it limited in, in the business. It's like, oh, I'm not sure because everybody else have done the same kind of company. It, it would limit you. So, and it it did because I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of dogs. I was afraid of big boys. Uh, there were so many things I was afraid of. And I thought, okay, this could be a good thing to take the bandits off one th- time for all. <laughs> Jim, and, that's uh, one hell of a bandage ripoff to go from being afraid of everything to thinking, oh, Joe, I'll go and become a legionnaire. Yeah. As as I said, when you have ADHD, you're quite spontaneous. But overcoming his fears wasn't the only driving factor to head off and join an army stooped in history. 
He was also escaping the Danish weather. You know, in Denmark, we have shitty weather nine months a year, and it's cold. I don't like the cold. So I thought, okay, because I, I'm this generation who grew up with Jacques Van Damme. So I had seen Jacques Van Damme. He had done two movies about the French Foreign Legion. So I thought, I mean, everything I saw there was in the desert. And what I could have done, I could have gone to the library and opened my book. I didn't. I just put my faith in Jacques Van Damme. And, and I realized that perhaps I should have gone to the library because the first four months of my training was in the fucking French pioneers and we're fuck, never free so much in my life. <laughs> it was horrible. So young Jim is off on a new adventure set on conquering his fears of the world around him. Signing up for the Legionnaires in Paris, he soon heads off to the south of France. At that time, 300 men would apply each week, with only 30 being chosen. Jim was one of those 30, and was soon thrown into a rigorous training course for four months, which he says taught him some extremely valuable lessons. I learned to not lose my head in stressful situations. They, they will give you like, like say five or seven different tasks and you will only have time to solve three, perhaps four of them. So very quick, you learn, okay, which one is the most important? So that's one of the things. And due to my ADHD and my ability to do a lot of fuck-ups, I became quite good at doing push-ups. I mean, when I arrived, I could do 10. I could not even do one pull-up. But in the end, I could do... I don't know, I think around 20 and between 50 and 100 push-ups because I did so many mistakes. So my mistakes came in handy in my physical things. Yeah, yeah. What I never learned was my coordinations are not that well. They're so bad that I was not allowed to throw a hand grenade. Don't let Jim touch a grenade. <laughs> no, 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 no. And, uh, and another thing is that in the Legion, you have tradition of singing because like, Back in the days when when they walked through the desert, they sing a lot of different songs. And no, I never learned to sing. I never learned it. I mean, imagine you have a company, 50 soldiers, more than 50% from Eastern Europe, speaking French with a heavily dialect. Even there, you're the only one that asked to shut the fuck up. <laughs> um, and... You have to understand, I was not there to become a, a, a pro-soldier. I was there to work with my fear. The French Foreign Legion is stooped in history. First forming in the 1800s, its selection process is notoriously tough, and men from all over the world each year take on the challenge to join its ranks. So Jim was slowly using his time as a legionnaire to conquer his fears, one of which was jumping, as he puts it, from anything higher than around three metres. So if you're afraid of jumping from heights, not even great heights, naturally, when you get the choice of your regiment within the French Foreign Legion... So therefore, it made sense to sign up for the paratroopers. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? And and you you first had a three-week course where uh, you learn, because the the parachute you use is round, and that means you, you hit the ground quite heavily quite hard and so you have to like make a roll when you hit the ground yeah again because of my coordination is not that good i never really learned to do that proper so the first time we went up to a plane because in the end of those three weeks uh training we should do seven jumps over two days i remember that uh when we were ready to go up in that plane, I mean, I didn't feel good, but I thought, okay, it will come. Of course, that you will get over it. But again, I thought, okay, if I should be the last one to jump out, then I have to stand in the plane and think about, oh, when is my turn? When is it my turn? And when is my turn? So I so, said, okay, what about if I'm the first one? So I moved myself up. So I, I was the first one who came out. And it's like a Hercules. So you go up in the back yeah. and uh, and you attach yourself in the ceiling because the parachute open automatically. If you can if you can imagine you have a backpack on yeah. and then you have back over your parachute, you attach 
into a, a line in, in the plane. So when you jump out, it pulls the bag off and the parachute comes out. I was ready. We all sat down. The plane took off. And in the heights of between 300 and 350 meters, they opened the door. Just that is fucked up. <laughs> and, 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 and you have to imagine you fly with like 300 kilometers per hour. Everything in you say, this is just stupid. So an adjutant, that's the rank of, of the soldier. He just stood in the door. He took a, a doll with a parachute off, threw it out. And that's to test like the wind direction and stuff like yeah. that. And that is on. He he said, he said, okay, stand up. We stood up. He said to me, okay, come and stand in the door. There's a red light and a green lamp. And right now it's red. When it becomes green, you jump. I said, yeah, yeah, okay. How hard can that be? And I was standing there. And I remember while standing there, I was like, this is such a bad idea. I mean, everything in, in you say you should not jump. The light turns green and I froze. So so this guy, guy just kicked me in the back. So I just fly out of the plane. <laughs> and that was that was my first jump. And I hit the ground like a bag of potatoes, just like bam. And I did three more jumps that day. I did three jumps the other day, so that was seven. And I realized, nope, nope, nope. You would never learn to enjoy that. So at no point so, did you suddenly go, this is exhilarating. I love this. I'm going to keep doing this. Nope. no. Nope. I hate it. <laughs> I have done 21 jump in the Legion and I hated every one of them. I will tell the last 14, I was drunk every time. <laughs> oh I, I kept a six packs of beer under my bed. So when, so when we were going to jump, I just like, all right, keep me. Bum, 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 drank those. So my ner nerve would come landing on the ground. That was the part I hated. Right. Because first it's like, just like, you jump out and just that is crazy. Like, will it open? Okay, okay, fine. Fuck, it's open. And when you're up there, it's like, in less than one minute, you will hurt yourself oh. badly when you hit the ground and then, Oh, fuck. And then you pick up your stuff. Yeah, that was horrible. <laughs> but I learned so much else. I learned to speak French as well. Yeah. Well, there, there's a positive. <laughs> I mean, absolutely, yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> incredible. So, but you never actually saw any sort of form of war, did you, or any sort of um, actual combat? No, 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 no. Luckily, I didn't. At that time, I was sad I didn't because that would have been the ultimate test of meeting your fear because yeah. what is more frightening than being in a war situation. But today I'm really, really glad I didn't. So Jim's time in the Legionnaires would come to an end and he headed back home. He describes that time as therapy for him and helped him to get his head straight and overcome a lot of the fears he'd carried with him at a younger age. When he returns home, he gets himself a job as a telemarketer, of all things. But as I'm sure you can imagine, it's not long before the lure of adventure is calling and he heads off overseas. Spending time in the party scene of Ibiza is where Jim would try his first drug at the age of 21. Eventually, he makes his way to Tenerife, where he gets a job in a bar. And it's while working in this bar that he would make a contact, a contact that would eventually lead him down the path to becoming a very big player in the world of cocaine trafficking. However, it didn't just happen overnight. At that point, uh, I had no vision of being uh, a criminal uh, or, or selling drugs. And the, the, the thing was, like for many years, I didn't see myself as a criminal. Because after Spain, I went home to Denmark and uh, the whole tech electronic era started. And in the beginning, it was just because that I bought drugs for me and my friends. Yeah. So so we could take it when, when we went out. And uh, due to I'm quite extrovert, uh, uh, it was almost me getting it 
and I, I would call the guy I was getting it from. He said, listen, if you buy a little bit more, you get it cheaper. And in that way, my own stuff started to be free and I made a little bit more money. And and then it was just like more and more people found out I had it. And that's actually how it started. I think it was first when, um, when I stopped working that I thought, oh, I guess this is what I'm doing now. Jim says he's often asked if he felt bad about selling cocaine. And the simple answer is that at the time, no, he didn't. I'm coming from the countryside. I'm, I'm not born in Copenhagen. I, I, I come 60 kilometres outside Copenhagen. And the town I'm from, it's like a working class town. And I grew up with like, you want to be a lawyer, you, you want to be a doctor, you want to be a politician, become a dentist. I mean, all those people you were told, this is the people you want. I mean, this is what you want to achieve. They're the top of our society. They're the one with the answer. And suddenly, when all those people become your clients, it's it's a little bit difficult to see what you do is wrong. Of course, you know it's entirely it's not entirely legal, but I didn't see myself worse than in 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 Denmark in the eighties and the nineties. You had like cigarette smugglers who got cigarettes in without tax, and those guys they were almost seem like freedom fighters because people were pissed about this to pay so much on taxes. It's it's funny how that the law, in some way, people say, oh, that's criminal, but this is not really criminal. So it was also that way I saw myself at that time that I didn't see what I was doing was that bad. The one thing I quickly learned about Jim is he's no showboater, even though he should be with his impressive resume, he's not here to big note himself as some mastermind of a criminal empire, name-dropping celebrities he hung out with, or in fact, getting into the nitty-gritty of just how much cocaine he was in fact selling. What sort of uh, levels are we talking at did you get to with your selling of drugs? How much were you buying and and selling at one point? (sighs) Oh, let's not get into numbers. (laughs) 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 <laughs> it was a I fair mean, amount. No, let, let's say in, in, in the beginning, it was just a big party. Yeah. So it, it, it was a whole new world that opens itself to me. I mean, suddenly you were partying with all the people you read about in the magazines and stuff like that. And uh, I, I know I, I said I didn't see myself as a criminal, but the fact is it was criminal the sentence for dealing drug is quite high. So at one point I, I start to think about if I should survive in, in that business, I had to rethink the whole structure. So I thought if, if I buying from somebody in Denmark, I don't know who he's buying from. I don't know who he's selling to, and that's a risk. So I start thinking about what if I can bring it into the country, then I have then I don't have that problem. And what if I send to the end user? So in the end, that was how I I got my business, got pure cocaine into the country and sold to the end users. So you literally, there was no middleman, no one else involved. It was you from start to finish. Yeah. So there was no one that, yeah, as you said, there's no one that can, um, can potentially screw you over. No. Obviously, eventually you did get caught, but at any stage, did you think about giving up? You know, because I'm sure you were making a fair amount of money. Did you get to a point when you went, you know what, I've got enough cash here. I might just call, I've, I've been lucky. Let me call it quits. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be a smart thing to do. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, I didn't have an end plan. The reason why I got caught was because at one point my connection outside Denmark was caught and then I started to buying until I found a new one from a guy in Denmark, and that was how it all started. I broke my own rules, and he was important a lot of stuff, so it was a big case, about 50 kilos of cocaine. Yeah, they, they, they wanted to charge me for 8.7 keys of cocaine. Uh, in the end, I was sentenced for 1.6 kilos, and I had a sentence for five and a half years. In prison. So Jim is arrested, convicted and sentenced to just over five years in prison, although he says at the time it really didn't bother him. In fact, it didn't even make him quit his day job. 
while I was criminal, we, we had a saying saying, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. If you have been punished your entire life, punishment doesn't work on you. Yeah. It doesn't. I mean, look at this United States. They have some of the hardest punishment. It's like 2 million people sit in prison. Yeah, well, it's in the, the highest States. incarceration rate in the entire world. Exactly. And exactly some of the hardest prisons you have. So it doesn't work. And uh, that was the same with me. So no, there was no time that I was thinking that I should stop being a criminal. So I continued while I was in prison. You're continuing your criminal enterprise from from inside prison. Yep. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps to detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, of course, in one minute remaining, we interview men and women incarcerated in the United States, and I hear all sorts of horror stories of how the inmates are treated and how they spend such a large portion of their lives inside, locked up in small cells. So I was keen to hear from Jim just how prisons in Denmark compare. The basic is the same because your your freedom is still taken. You're still locked away. I normally say the only difference between Danish prison and the American prison is that in Denmark, you should not be afraid that you will get raped, but your freedom is still taken. Yeah. And in the beginning... You're also locked away like 23 hours a day while you're waiting for your sentence. And in my first sentence, I I waited for my sentence for more than a year. So I, I was in isolation for the first two months, and then I was waiting for getting my sentence for like basically one year. And in that year, you have, uh, you have visit once a week where you sit in a room where the people who come and visit you and a police officer. But then things loosen up when 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 you have the sentence. It depends what kind of prison you get into. So were you in a, a what they would classify as a maximum security prison or were you just in a general? Uh, not not in my first sentence. I mean, until you get your sentence, this is kind of crazy. That's also something I argue about because while you went waiting for your sentence, that's actually the hardest part. And that doesn't make sense because what if you're innocent? I mean, you're just waiting for getting yeah. your sentence. So, so you they put you in a place that is really, really hard. The reason why it's not that hard for me is not because I'm a bad guy, a tough guy or anything. It's because I've been institutionalized my whole life. Yeah, That's why. That's, that's also my survival in the French Foreign Legion is that I'm used to this structure. It's just different forms but the basic is the same you have people that ask you to do things in not in a nice way this whole institutionalization is a part of you but i could imagine i mean i I mean i cannot even imagine for a regular person going into that and being innocent 
how how they will handle it afterwards mentally. Yeah, well, I mean, I, the number of the, the men and women I speak to with in America, it's very similar. As soon as you get charged, you go into what they call jail. Some of them spend like two, a guy I spoke to spent two and a half years in there. And they say that the jails are worse than when you get into prison because you get more freedom when you get to prison than you do in the jail. Yeah, yeah that's right. I think that's an. I mean, <laughs> it makes no sense. It absolutely makes no sense. No, no, but but the whole prison system doesn't make sense because if we should think logic about this and not how to get voters, because if you get voters, you use this Bible consensus that an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and stuff like that. But that that doesn't work. You get a lot of voters because a lot of people are quite simple. Oh yeah, yeah, we yeah. have to be punished. Yeah. People don't look at the bigger picture. I'm not saying. That that should not, of course, if you do something, there have to be a reaction. You have to take responsibility for what you do. But if you have a person who have done something bad, and if we don't don't start executing people, then it's our mission to make sure what we put in here comes better out there. Yeah. Otherwise, we created a monster that makes the street more dangerous for you, for me, for our kids. So while we have those people in custody, it should be our finest task to make sure they come out as better citizens. The amount of people who said I had to go to prison to become a real criminal, it's a school for criminals. That's all it is, really. There's no reform. There's no, you know. No, 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 no. And and even politicians know I'm right in what I say, but there's no voters in it. What I try to explain, if if somebody shot your brother, no matter what happened to him it would not take away that pain. You will always have that pain. So, of course, because if anybody shot my brother, I wanted to shoot him. That's, of course, that's the feeling. But it's not like if I have shot him, I will feel better. It, it wouldn't change that I still miss my brother. But if you look at it, that, if we're not killing that person and we put that person in jail, wouldn't it be nice that we can make sure something happens so he won't go out and shoot another person afterwards or be so insane that he goes out and shoots him? And we're not thinking about that. And that's the whole problem about the prison system. The one thing that is different in the Denmark prison system is that towards the end of your sentence, you're given weekend releases where you can go home and return the following week. And it was while Jim was out one weekend on one of these releases that he would meet his soon-to-be wife. First of all, it's a little bit hard to to say to a girl, well, I'm in prison for dealing drugs. But to say to her, and you know, the funny part is, I'm still a criminal. So I said to her, uh, I'm in prison, I'm serving for, for dealing drugs, but I helped a friend, I know it's bad, but... Right now, I'm taking education. Uh, I'm a key account manager, which is not entirely lie. <laughs> and uh, we we <laughs> we started dating. And when I was released from prison, we went to India and we got married. We came home. She became pregnant. And in the summertime, her parents had a big wedding for us. And two weeks later, I was sent to prison again. Jesus, Jim. Yep. So up until this point, Jim's new wife and the mother of his child has had no idea that her husband is still a cocaine dealer. He's been living a double life. He said there was never any large amounts of cash around that needed explaining, no nefarious characters turning up to his house, and each day he would leave the house to go to work. Until, of course, the day he was arrested for the second time. Jim talks me through the moment of his arrest. I had just met with the guy from another country and uh, he had given me 800 gram of pure cocaine and I went by a flat. I never had it at my own place. So I had a flat I, I, I used for that. I went back, dropped that, came back to a cafe where my wife was with my dad and with my son. I drove my dad home to, to his town and on my way back, I needed some products. So I, I put my wife off at a cafe and uh, I went up, got the things I needed and went back to the cafe. I sat down 
I started drinking my soda and out of the blue, two big figures came and jumped me for the back. And that was the cop. And at that point, I, I really thought I was fucked because I knew, of course, what there was up in that apartment. But it, it was more that um, I really thought she was going to leave me because I, I'm, I'm normally say if I was a racehorse, I would definitely not have put money on me at that time because I, I was 37 years old. I had a kid for early, earlier marriage and uh, I had no education and I was about to serve my my second prison time for cocaine and they sentenced me eight years to prison. Jim is back off to prison, this time for eight years. But his wife doesn't leave him. She decides to stand by her man, but has some conditions attached. You, you, you have to promise me not to go to prison again, and you have to promise me to take education. And I, I said, okay, uh, this not going to prison again. I can, I can promise you that. Then I can just get a job in a supermarket or whatever. But going back to school, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but she said, we have to find a way. So uh, I was waiting at that sentence one and a half years for my sentence. Wow. And uh, the only way we could communicate was like one hour visit a week where there was a police officer and by letters. Jim says he was writing terrible letters to his wife full of spelling and grammar mistakes. But being a smart lady, she used this as an opportunity to get the education shy Jim to start learning. She would correct his mistakes and send the letters back with her own and eventually forced him to start reading and this would all pay off. One and a half year later, when I started uh, my, my sentence, she said, now you take your high school diploma. So she helped me to take my whole high school diploma from prison. And I came out with one of the country's highest average grade point averages. And I was accepted to study psychology at Copenhagen University. Amazing. I, I think the turning point here was that for the first time in, in, in my adult life, there was somebody who believed in me and and loved me for yeah. who I was. Well, it's going back to that gentleman that, that took that took you in, that you thought you owed him something, and I suppose you probably thought the same with your wife now, that you owed it to her yeah. to do the same. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And and it it, it made me look at something in, in a whole other way because, I mean, she was spitting on me and... She loved me for who I was. And then I was like, I mean, why do I need a big car? Why do I have a penthouse apartment? I mean, I have the most beautiful girl in town. And I just started to figure out who I am as a person. And I didn't have to pretend. I don't have to uh, change uh, to be something I'm not. And, and that was really, really good from uh, my own self-esteem. Ironically, after Jim finally discovers who he really is and can be himself, he then gets approached to do the complete opposite, to become someone else, to play a character, and to infiltrate the world's most secretive dictatorship in the world, North Korea. North Korea wasting no time in retaliating. Official state media saying the North launched two cruise missiles on the eve of the drills from a submarine off North Korea's coast. Breaking news overnight, North Korea test fired an intercontinental ballistic missile. The missile, which fell into the sea off Japan, is thought to be capable of reaching the continental U.S. This is one of the most powerful missiles we've seen North Korea test. Now, after Jim comes out of prison, he's, of course, got a high-profile case, which means journalists are contacting him, wanting to do interviews. However, he says he just wasn't interested, as all they cared about was creating a sensationalised story. So how much money have you made? Which famous customers did you have and stuff like that? And I was, of course, not interested in that because that would not make the world a better place. Yeah. But then a, a guy I started psychology with, he said, my wife, she worked at Danish National Radio, and... 
she wants you to tell the story as you want. I say, if I have a saying, I want to make a love story. And I think it's more interested in explaining why do people become criminal and what's more important, what does it take for them not to become criminal? And uh, we did this radio show called 1.6 Kilo of Coke. <laughs> and uh, and the 18th September 2015, we were nominated for Best Feature of the Year. And we won. And at that award show, I met Mess Brugger. At that time, Mess Brugger had a radio station. And while I was in prison, I had watched some of his documentary. So I, I, I was a big fan of what, what he did. So we had a chat and he invited me to the radio and we became friends. So a quick backstory on Mads Brugger, a name you may not be familiar with. He's a documentary filmmaker from Denmark who's made a couple of satirical documentaries, including one made in North Korea called The Red Chapel. It chronicles the visits of Brugger and two Danish comedians who were adopted from South Korea to North Korea under the pretense of a small theatre troupe on a cultural exchange. Of course, the entire trip is a ruse, and the trio are actually trying to get a chance to portray the absurdity of the pantomime life they are forced to lead in the DPRK. I think six months later, I had a phone call, and he called me up and said, Hey, Jim, how are you doing? I said, I'm good. Have you ever heard about the North Korean Friendship Association? I said, what? Come on. Because in my mind, it sounded so fucking crazy that anybody in Denmark in their right mind could think that North Korea was great. And he said, but this is the truth. Uh, and then he just quick, quick explained to me about Ulrich, that this former chef, now retired, had gone undercover in this friendship association and he had been there for seven years. You heard that right. A man named Ulrich Larsen, a former chef living on benefits, would, by the time the entire documentary was filmed, have spent 10 years of his life infiltrating North Korea and the Korean Friendship Association. Yes, the KFA exists and has multiple factions across the globe where people can become members and supporters of North Korea and, of course, the supreme leader. Not only would he make his way up the ranks of the KFA, but, with the help of Jim, would have high-level meetings with North Korean officials. Three years prior, uh, the president of the, the whole Friendship Association all around the world had started asking him if he knew anybody who could be interested in investing in North Korea. And that was why he thought about me. Because when that had happened, first he tried to look at actors, but it's a little difficult that if the North Korean looked him up, that one day he's an investor, the next yeah, day yeah, he's, got, he's an IMBD. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then he tried to find businessmen, but you couldn't find any businessmen in the right mind who want to do that task. And that was why he thought I could be up for the task. But, it, I mean, it is truly, when you think about it, I mean, I'm watching it. It's just, it's absolutely mind-blowing to think, number one, you've got Ulrich, who's, you know, this just former chef who's now infiltrating North Korea, and then you're coming in pretending to be this billionaire, and, and you end up doing an arms deal with the North Korean government or, or are a part of the North Korean government. I mean, it's not, this is not child's play. This is dangerous stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just think that, I, I I just used the things I uh, I have been through life that uh, I think that was got me through it, and I must say I had fun with it. It 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 was exciting. You you have to think about it started out slow because in the beginning it was I would not say hundred percent safe, but it was safer because yeah. we were starting up in Oslo. North Norway is basically our neighbor country in Denmark. So you're back, you're back only in your own backyard. In the beginning, we didn't know what he was looking for money to. It could have been everything. It was first that when he rolls out and say, oh, we can help you make weapons. And by the way, we can sort out making methamphetamine. And it was just like, whoa, 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 whoa. And, and then you kind of also get obsessed with it because in the end, it's just like, I mean, if this plays out, you're actually doing something nobody else have done before. And that's actually like the drive for me making me do taking some higher risk later in the in the film. Now when Jim says higher risks, 
He's not kidding. Jim and Ulrich would be secretly recording a lot of their meetings with the North Korean officials, but also a lot of open recording, as Ulrich would say he was filming for propaganda videos for the NFA. Eventually, Ulrich and Mr James, as he's known to the North Koreans, would hop on a plane and head over to the DPRK to continue their discussions. Let's not understate the danger these men were putting themselves in. As we all are aware, North Korea is one of the world's most, if not the most, secretive and brutal dictatorships. A notoriously private country that does not allow any filming or photography in areas that are not already pre-approved by the government. Those who have travelled to North Korea for tourism purposes all say the same. You are treated very well, but you are under no illusions that you are not to stray from your hotel when unaccompanied by guides. And if you dare do anything that is perceived as breaking the rules of its dictatorship, well, the consequences can be extremely severe. This morning, 21-year-old Otto Warmbier is behind bars in North Korea, sentenced to 15 years in a North Korean prison with hard labor. A visibly shaken Warmbier paraded before cameras, speaking at his trial Wednesday, which only lasted one hour. I was huge. And manipulated. Please, act to save me. Please save my life. Otto was an American college student who was imprisoned in North Korea in 2016 on a charge of subversion. He entered North Korea as part of a guided tour group on December the 29th, 2015. On January 2nd, 2016, he was arrested at Pyongyang International Airport while awaiting departure from the country. He was later convicted of attempting to steal a propaganda poster from his hotel, for which he was sentenced to 15 years of imprisonment with hard labour. Shortly after his sentencing in March of 2016, Otto suffered a severe neurological injury from an unconfirmed cause and fell into a coma. In June of 2017, he was released by North Korea, still in a coma, which would last until he died. And we begin with late developments today, the worsening horror for a mother and father from Ohio. Their son, who was just returned from North Korea with severe brain damage, has now died. This was the moment Otto Warmbier was returned, unable to talk or recognize anyone after more than a year in captivity. His parents reacting just a short time ago, pointing to the, quote, awful, torturous mistreatment at the hands of the North Koreans that did this. ABC's chief global affairs correspondent, Martha Raddatz. If that's what happens to someone for stealing a poster, you can only imagine what might happen to Ulrich and Jim if the North Koreans were to discover they were in fact working undercover for a documentary trying to expose the lengths that the country would go to to avoid global sanctions. Nonetheless, Mr James and Ulrich head off for North Korea. there for five days and we knew we should only be there for five days and they took me to crazy spots i mean i i would say i had an amazing time like one day my youngest son he had done taekwondo since he was four years old so one day as a surprise they took me to a big training place put me in a copy of a chesterfield chair pulls up some cognac and had gathered the whole national team in taekwondo and made a big show for me i could film and another point, uh, 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 they showed me the great leader had made a water park for $100 million. I'm a big fan of water parks. I, I am. I, I really love water parks. I've actually went to Dubai just because they have yeah, water an amazing park. water yeah. parks. When I saw that, I was like, holy fuck, I want to try it. He said, no, 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 we will show it to you. I said, what do you mean? If I can't try it, I don't want to go. So they had to call it around. And I mean, what is more funny than going into a water park in North Korea? So I thought that's going to be crazy. So yeah, I I, I went to a water park in, in North Korea. Uh, but we did all those activities while, <laughs> while we were there, but we were not getting close. So Mr. James decided he needs to get things moving. 
and try and get closer to finding out just what the North Koreans had to offer them. And in doing so, it would put himself and Ulrich in a situation that they thought may be their last. And see, this is the thing. North Koreans like to know people. But I knew, like, to convince the production company to send us back, it's already a high risk to send us in the first place. To send us back later on would be an even higher risk. So I knew if we should have anything to come home with, we, we, we had to push it a little forward. So, so one day I'm, I'm talking to Kang, that is one of the agents following us around. And before this conversation, it's important that people understand when, when you fly into North Korea, you fly into um, a black hole because your mobile phone stopped working. Yeah. The internet, you have no contact on the internet. You have, you have lost all contact to the outside world. But with that information, I thought I could use it. So I say to uh, Kang, I say, you know what? I really love everything you have shown me. I have had the best vacation in my life. It's so amazing because they really, really did an effort to make me happy. Uh, But I have to tell you, I'm not coming back. This trip have costed me 200,000 euro. Of course, this is a number I pull out of my ass, but it makes sense because if I had been Mr. James, and if I had been five, Mr. James had been five days in North Korea, he would have been on his computer talking to clients, yeah. answer phones, answer SMS and stuff like that. And that costs money not to be able to do that. So I say, I mean, just for the record, if we don't find out of anything now, nothing will happen. I, I'm not coming back. And that was why the next day, while breakfast, he 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 say, okay, we drive, and then we start driving towards the streets in Pyongyang, and suddenly outside Pyongyang, and in the end we just ended up in an area that didn't look like a place you wanted to go, and they parked the car in front of a building that looks like something that should have been torn down ten years ago. And they ask us to go down in the basement. I don't know if you have seen uh, the movie Hostel. I have, yes. Yeah. In my mind, there was in, behind that door, there was like a guy with a leather <laughs> jacket and an axe and a hooks in the in, in the ceiling. I was, I was like, holy fuck! And I, I, I was like, I mean, because you cannot run anywhere. And I was like, what would be the most reasonable if I was Mr. James? How would I react if that is what I see? And I was like, you will be angry. You will be defended. You you will. So I started to think about all the time my wife had pissed me off just to find that anger. <laughs> uh, and when I opened the door, it's like, okay, one, two, three, open. And then suddenly I was standing in this amazing restaurant. It turned out later that all my paranoia and Ulrich's paranoia came from ourselves because it had nothing to do about them frightening us. It turns out that North Korean, as paranoid they are for strangers, they're also paranoid internally. Yeah. So the why they took us there was because those guys we were dealing with wanted to make sure nobody else was listening. I mean, and when we say no one else, no other North Korean. So this was their turf. That was their secret base. And the contract we were making down there, some of the most important stuff they were interested in, what would be that when we finalize the contract, all the people in that room (laughs) will be involved. And this is because in North Korea, you don't decide yourself where you live. It's given to you. Because in Pyongyang, to live in Pyongyang, it's given. I mean, everybody that lives in Pyongyang is very close to the leader. So you can imagine if you come up with a guy throwing down minimum 50 million euro, it could be a good pension for your life. Mm. Your life was absolutely better. And that was what they were interested in. While in this basement restaurant, the men are entertained by karaoke singing ladies, food and a lot of alcohol. All while they peruse catalogues given to them 
of weapons that they can purchase. Guns, tanks, even surface-to-air missiles are all on offer for the right price. A deal is struck, and believe it or not, a contract is signed. The men left without blowing their cover, and in fact, with their weapons brochures under their arms. But this wouldn't be the last time they would hang out with the North Korean dignitaries, as the next port of call for the business transaction sounds like it's straight out of a Bond movie. They needed to purchase an island in which to build an underground factory to take delivery of weapons and parts in which to make more weapons. So it was off to Uganda, where Mr James would look to purchase this island. The only issue? Well, it was inhabited by thousands of people. However, this just didn't seem to be a concern for local authorities. To get weapon out of North Korea is quite complicated. I think it's easier to get cocaine out of Colombia than it is to get weapons out of North Korea. <laughs> they, they suggested it would make more sense that we will build a weapon factory in another country. So first we were looking at Namibia and I started to look at different pieces of land, but that was taken off the table because of the sanctions. And then uh, they came up with Uganda. And on Google, I found this amazing uh, real estate agency that sold islands. And I, I remember I called Matt and said, I mean, this is amazing. I mean, you cannot find anything that's more Dr. Evil than <laughs> having a private island in the Victoria Lake. I mean, with a weapon factory. So I started negotiating. And, and and that was on Google. It was not even on, on any secret uh, cryptized uh, uh, platform. No, we were doing it at Google. And I said to them, I cannot tell you what I want to use the island for, but I want 100% privacy. And for my time while I was in the Legion uh, in Djibouti, I knew if you should de- have any kind of land deals and don't want it to be fucked over, it will always be nice to have a collaboration partner for the government. And I said that to them. I need a collaboration partner for the government. And they say it would be no problem. So uh, we went to see the island. It was first, I mean, we had rented a boat. The producer, Peter, with me. He's a he's a journalist. And it was quite important because it was important that we did everything by the book. So he, he came with me as an advisor. Officially, he was my accountant. But on the sets, it was just like, I mean, what should I say in a situation like that? Because it was important that we didn't make a honeypot. It was important that all the ideas came from them. We shouldn't create anything. It should come from them. So it was really nice for me to have him with me. So if I had a question, I could ask him, how how should we angle this situation? But when we stand there uh, uh, waiting to go on the island, I had been talking to the captain of the boat and Peter here talking to the representative of the landowner. And suddenly Peter came to me and said, the representative of the landowner just told me that he had told the people, because they apparently live people on the island, that we are there to, or you're there to build a hospital. So suddenly we were caught in somebody else's lie. It was so important for me to figure out a way that we got inside the movie on film that this was not an idea created by us. Yeah. So uh, after we had been on this island, and it, it was it was so crazy. I mean, we went into a church, and, and the representative of the landowner, who came up with this crazy idea, had a whole preacher for for the people there that, together with God, they should praise me for building a hospital. I mean, it was shocking. It, it, it was so crazy on a whole other level. So I need your cooperation, eh? Okay, now let us pray. I bless these people in Jesus' name. Before we left the island, I talked to the captain. I said, do you know a five-star hotel up the river or something like that? Because then we will have a a meeting afterwards. So I said to the representative of the landowner and the real estate broker, I really love everything about it. Let's have a meeting to summit everything. And then afterwards, I give dinner. And at that meeting, I just said, by the way, why did you tell the people on the island I was there to 
to build a hospital because it's quite important to have that bit in the film yeah, because otherwise you will watch the film and say what a horrible crew they have manipulated all those people so it was quite important for us that that idea didn't come from us what i was saying to introduce you as a friendly party to the people on the island because we don't want them to know that it is a transaction that is going on between the landlord and us. And, and, and this is why you told them that uh, our style should build a hospital? Yes, yes, yes. hospital. Okay, okay, yes. okay. And then he said that uh, it's because then we will have no problem with them. Because it turned out that there's a law in Uganda that if if you build your houses in a certain way, because they live there uh, illegally. I mean, they, I mean, they live there because they have nowhere else to live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but if they build up their houses in a certain way, then you cannot remove them. Yeah. And if they were told that I bought the island and I wanted to have them fucked off, then they will start to build the houses in yeah, that way. Right, and yeah. they will not be able to kick them off the island. So the reason why he said that was for them just to be happy that a hospital would come and then in four months we could throw... And he's, I'd say, how many people live there? And he said a few hundred. But when we had a helicopter later, when I showed the, the island to the North Korean, I realized there lived thousands of people. Yeah, no, I island. thought the same thing when I was watching the actual documentary because I remember the guy saying there was a couple of hundred there. And I was, I was thinking, yeah. looking at that the vision, I'm like, there's far more than a couple of hundred people on that island. There's more than that. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's thousands. And, and, and they were willing to throw them off the island within four months. My duty is to remove those people on the land without causing friction. Okay. Yeah. And how fast? Can we uh, have the move? Maximum is four months. That is included in the price, right? Uh, yeah, it's good. I think it's also important that to understand that the openness they had about it, because mm. I mean, in our part of the world, if if you and I had a meeting and I would say to you, okay, okay, I will throw them out. First of all, I would not have a microphone. No. I, I, I mean, I would never be sure that anybody heard me saying this. And that's just telling me this is something happens every day. Yeah. Even when we had the meeting with the guy from the government, that was not even done with uh, hidden cameras. No, I know. I said, I said to him, you know what? I really love what you're saying, you guys. I have to, I have to present everything to my board. I think it would be easier we film it because then we won't miss out on anything. And he said, yes. I mean, what I said was so incriminated. So if I had been him and said, oh, by the way, oh, no, 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 we cannot film that. Because what I say is like, I cannot tell you what I want to use the island for. That would be the first red lamp. The next is that, and by the way, I want a permission that I can land a Boeing 747 without, without any, any customers. It's like... You don't see any red flag in that sentence. All they see is the cash. They don't care about anything else. That's all they worry about, oh. the money. <laughs> it's I mean, it's funny. You, you mentioned the whole island, the Dr. Evil thing. There is a part in the documentary that I made me laugh a lot. There's a moment where you are sitting in like this plush chair looking like you do your billionaire and you're holding a cat and stroking a cat. And I'm just laughing going, you would just look like the ultimate bad guy from a Bond movie right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was very, very funny. But, I mean, look, eventually, obviously, you know, uh, the gig is sort of the gig's up. It gets to a point where you can go no further and, and uh, Mr. Jim, as you're called, um, goes in, goes sort of disappears, and and it all sort of wraps up with uh, Ulrich and and the the director obviously revealing who they are to this other gentleman who's um, sort of heavily involved in North Korea. Not he's not a North Korean, but he's heavily involved. He's from Spain, I believe. The director's asked by Annie, who I've spoken to before, who's in the show as well. She talks to you guys. 
you know, what about Jim? You know, have you sorted out um, any protection for Jim? Obviously, because you've just infiltrated North Korea, you've made them look like fools essentially, and and sort of shown the world what they're doing. You know, with all these sanctions and sell it, willing to make drugs for people and sell weapons. You know, the old great leader himself has killed family members for less than what you've done, um, but you apparently turned down um, that that any help and said, no, no, I'll be fine. So there was no ounce of you that went, yeah, this could be dodgy for a while. I, I, I think like this, if a government wants you killed, if you're not living like Salman Rosti, I mean. Yeah, they're going to get you. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what, why get stressed about having security and stuff like that? That's just what I think. Uh, that said, um, I think the reason why they're not doing anything is because if they react on this movie, that's the same as saying we have a point. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, saying we have a point is to admit that a former chef and a former cocaine pusher have fucked off the most paranoid country in the world. That makes them look stupid, right? Yeah, totally. So... I think they've just stayed to that strategy saying, no, it's all fabricated. It's a propaganda. It's a smear campaign to make our beautiful country uh, not look like it, it is. I think. So have you ne- you've never had anyone, because obviously you're on Instagram and you're all across that side of things, you've never had anyone contact you with any particular threats or anything like that? It's basically you've not heard anything more since? No, not so far. Wow. I think the only thing I'm a little sad about is I don't get Christmas cards from Kim anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed today's special episode and the story of Mr. James. Now, be sure to check out the documentary, which is called The Mole Undercover in North Korea. For Australian audiences, that can be found on Foxtel. Also, make sure to head over to Jim's Instagram the link to which is in the show notes of this episode. Uh, Jim has said he answers all questions from his followers, so feel free to drop him a message and tell him OMR sent you. Don't forget, we release episodes like this exclusively to our OMR subscribers each and every month, so make sure you follow the link in the show notes to find out how you can become a supporter of the show. Next month, we have the story of a man who spent 34 years in prison for a murder he says he didn't commit. He talks me through what happened, as well as his time in some of the most famous facilities in America, such as San Quentin, and his run-in with multiple infamous inmates, including Charles Manson. And then he goes, don't you know who I am? I'm, you know, I'm Charles Manson. I'm better known than Jesus fucking Christ. Rah, rah, rah. He just starts yelling, right? One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Mm-hmm.